I've kept this for years. Because someday it'll be up to you. I don't want you to be afraid. I want you to understand. Knowledge is the only weapon we've got left. In the beginning, it was ignorance that destroyed us. I saw the first. But soon the world saw millions. No one knew how they spawned so fast. They swarmed like locusts, burning everything in their path, driven by one purpose, to feed. Even then, we couldn't believe they were real. Ancient man had made them into myths. But nature had made something far more terrible. Well, 2020 has been bad, but not as bad as it is for Christian Bale in Reign of Fire, a movie set in 2020 when dragons, yes dragons, have nearly destroyed the world. We had our own touch with the apocalypse in 2020, a strange year for everyone and especially for cinema. But even so, the movie industry came free for us and released some absolute crackers. In part one of our review of 2020, we look at the films we love the most. We don't know what we're doing, we're just talking about films. You're listening to Cellcast, I'm Lawrence. And I'm Sam. To the world burned. And the few of us that were left fled the cities, found shelter where we could. You have to understand our past, because you will decide our future. They're starving now, and they're more dangerous than ever. But we have to go on. We have to outlast them. Only one species is getting out of this alive. So it's still chilly and cold outside, if we were allowed to go outside, I'd I'd know that. Um, But... uh, it's the beginning of the year, beginning of 2021, and that means that well, me and you have both been thinking back over the year of 2020 that's just been. And uh, yeah, this is the uh, Cellcast review of the year, 2020. Yeah, so this is our chance to you know, talk about the films that we, we really, really liked, we really, really hated, and <laughs> quite a few um, honourable mentions in between. Yeah, I mean, we, um, we've got... Three films uh, that we loved each, and three films that we also hated. Uh, we just simply don't have enough time to talk about everything uh, that uh, we saw this year and experienced this year. Uh, if you want a bit of a sample of that, though, we've been doing this since January. We've got 21 uh, really great episodes uh, mostly really great episodes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Go go check out our back catalogue. Go check out our back catalogue. That you'll there's there's something for everyone. But uh, yeah, we wish we could we could talk and talk. But we've we we've labelled it down to these kind of six things we want to talk about each. And then we're also going to have a couple of honourable mentions and maybe have a little roundup of you know what have we learned this year? <laughs> you know, a nice little wholesome thing like a like a PSA at the end of an eighties cartoon. So I I really. I also want to say that I've really, really agonised of the over this list. I've tried not to overlap over your list too much. I know you've tr- not tried not to overlap over mine too much as well. But I know there's if we were to do a top ten, I think some of our picks would end up being in in each other's list. I think there'd be things we'd share, things we'd agree on. Yeah, I don't think we've sort of purposely tried to even out the films because we have got six different ones. We, yeah. You're right, we don't have any overlap. But no, I think. No, I think these these three films in particular were um, were really special to me, and yeah, I did think they were the the cream of the crop. But um, you're going to go ahead with your number three. Yeah, it's a really tough thing to pick just three. Uh, again, one of the great things about being into cinema is that there are so many good things released every year. 
It might not seem that way, but it really, really is. So with that caveat in mind, uh, my number three film is Possessor. Uh, this was directed by Brandon Cronenberg. Uh, this was uh, something I did a whole episode on. It's a psychedelic, visceral head fuck um, as a body-swapping assassin gets lost in her latest victim and nightmarish consequences uh, come out of that. It is just such a charged, twisted tale. It looks so good. Like, the whole thing is just such a thrill. You'll, you'll, you'll cringe and you'll be horrified and you'll be made to feel uncomfortable. You'll marvel at these visuals on screen. It's really just like a one-stop shop. I think for some people, the kind of cultishness of it and the grotesqueness of it might switch you off. But this is just like my kind of cinema. It, it's such a wonderful, visceral, gory bath for me just to dip in. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly violent. I don't think there's any way of getting around it. I no, think if, it's not yeah. for the squeamish. No, uh, I like to think of myself that I could watch, I can watch violent films and, and not be too disturbed by them. But this was one where I had to look away at times. Oh, really? But yeah, I really think it's it's so extreme. But um, I don't think you wanna, we want to get caught up in that, really, because it's a really great story. Um, it's a really interesting concept. I don't know. I mean, I think you know it a little bit better than me. So could you? would you be able to sort of describe um, the idea of a possessor and what one of those does? So it's about this assassin named Voss who... Her method of assassination is that in the in the future there's some technology which means she can take over someone's body. She takes over someone's body and then she kills the target, then kills herself. And the idea is she takes over the body of someone beyond a reasonable doubt, expect that they might have committed a murder. Mm. You know, a co-worker, a jilted lover, so, someone that like lost their marbles uh, and and killed someone. And then they she gets away scot free. But the thing is, the more she does this the more she starts to lose grip on herself. But whether she's started to lose a grip on herself because of this possessing or because of other things going on in her life, that's kind of the the question that the film starts to poise. Yeah, there's this really interesting duality because when she goes into the body of somewhere else, there's this idea, it's like, well, does she start to become them or does he start to become her? Do you know what I mean? There's this yeah. kind of this interesting amalgamation between the two and it just makes it kind of scary but really really interesting and it's accompanied again by the visualization of this it, there's loads of like really like creepy ways they they manage to do this sort of just uh, her playing someone that she's possessed in the mirror just reciting things or going through emotions or sometimes with uh more dreamlike sequences like their bodies melding uh they do a lot of that stuff and it's really like nightmarish it's just a great, it's just a great time. Yeah, um, some really amazing action scenes as well. Yeah, really, yeah, really visceral. I think you, that's one of the, like almost the perfect way to describe it. Really, yeah. I think that's the one word I'd say to someone if I had to just summarise it. Yeah, visceral. It is, but I do love viscerality in a film. That's always a big plus for me. If it can really, if it's the kind of thing that really makes you something that makes you skin crawl and. Uh, send shivers up your spine uh, I think that's a wonderful thing that cinema can do and it's great to see there are films that can still do that our next contract's a big one the target is the CEO of the largest operation in the US he'll be binding to Colin Tate we can't afford any mistakes on this one ready sometimes 
So what about your number three? Yeah, so my number three is 1917. I think it's a film that most people who are into cinema would have been to see or would have heard of. It's set in 1917, funnily enough. Um, is it? It It follows Lance Corporal Schofield and uh, Lance Corporal Blake. And they're tasked with giving a message to the 2nd Battalion of the Devonshire Regiment. The message is not to attack the German army, as they'll be hopelessly outnumbered and will face certain defeat, with 1,600 men at risk. And so over the course of the film, we basically follow those two characters and how they yeah, try to prevent a massacre. Um, I'd say it's a... Unlike the last one we talked about, I'd say it has this really universal quality to it. So I think it's one of those films that you could show someone who's 10 years old, or a film that you could show someone if they're like 80 or 90. It just has like this simple structure of just following these two characters trying to deliver this message and of course that's over a battlefield and that's over perilous landscape yeah it's the best experience i had in a cinema in terms of like the audiovisual quality and sort of being on the edge of my seat with the with it them running for a war zone there's just so many explosions there's so much gunfire there's so much obstacles in their way and with this film if you haven't seen it it has all these like long continuous takes so it's created to make you think that it's kind of shot in in just one one shot. Yeah. But of course, there's lots of clever edits along the way. So you know, I think it's probably about eight or nine scenes that they they've put together. At a, a bit of a guess. It could be more, but I mean, yeah, that's ultimately the effect. The, the effect of it is as if we're all watching it in one take. One of the first films on this list that actually might not have quite made it onto some people's lists because right right at the beginning of the year and in some parts of the world i think it might have been released in december but it was released here in january of 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 2020 uh it's one of my favorite films of the year uh quite easily it was one of those ones that i immediately saw and realized yeah that's not going anywhere that's absolutely taking my brain it is such a a brutal and intense like ride as you're watching this struggle for some kind of victory and humanity in one of the most inhumane landscapes in history and it's really unpredictable as well it is i think from scene to scene you just don't know what's going to happen and there's almost no time for respite there's there's a moment where corporal schofield goes unconscious and then that's the only break in the film apart from that they've tried to shoot it in real time it's got this like energy and intensity all the way through yeah it's energy if um i think the word i'd use to describe this energy because there's a constant momentum about this film one of the best experiences of 2020 was watching 1917 yeah and it's a technical masterclass and i don't know if we've mentioned on the pod before but roger deakins who shot the film, one of the best cinematographers of all time. Yeah. Uh, it feels like the in every single film, there's like a colour scope which he uses, which is always really, really effective. And within this, it's kind of the, the green, the black and the blue. It, it just really it adds so much to the film. To have the idea and to have the ability of being able to look like this film was, was done in one take is, is absolutely amazing. You have a brother in the 2nd Battalion. Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you fail, it will be a massacre. There is only one way this ends.
last man standing. So my number two film is Mogul Mowgli. Uh, another one I did an episode on my own uh, about not too long ago. Uh, identities clash in this really visually inventive trip through Zed, who is a British-Pakistani rapper dealing with a debilitating illness. This film just asked a lot of really big, important questions about this country, uh, and a lot of the people in it at a really critical time in our history. I mean, I'm British, and I love being British, and one of the things that I love most about this country is that there's just such a mix of different people and how we have our own unique identity when we all kind of combine and come together and make this strange mixed up country that we call uh, the United Kingdom. And this film is engaging with that. And I really, really like that. It, it made me really laugh at times. I think it had a really great sense of humour that was still really in keeping with the, the themes that they were talking about. It, it asked a lot of questions and didn't always give you answers, but not in a way that was unsatisfying. It was just in a way that really made you think. It, so it's a film that you could come away from and like have a conversation about, as well as I think that it's, it's going to be a film that everyone has their own kind of different reaction to. Uh, it is about identity at a time when like identity is such a massive topic. It, it's, it's just a, an experience that I really took with me and I've thought back on a lot since I've seen it, almost more than than a lot of other films that I've, I've seen this year. Plus, it's a great hip-hop film. And I really think that we need more good films uh, about hip-hop. Yeah, really showing Rizomed's talents, really. The fact that he can... Being an incredible actor and an incredible an rapper, rapper, rapper yeah, as well, yeah. That's right. This was the last film I saw in a cinema, so yeah, it, it, it feels quite special in that way. The main crux of the film is about a man getting a debilitating illness. Yes. He loses the ability of his muscles in, in his body, and that is such an uncomfortable thing to watch over mm. the course of about 90 minutes, really, because it's he, he goes from someone, yeah, who's on top of the world, who's a set to... Yeah, be probably one of the most famous rappers in this country. And then out of nowhere, he's in hospital and he's told that you might never uh, be able to walk again. And that's just absolutely terrifying because that's almost like so many people's worst nightmare. And the fact that you have to go and see someone through this. And as well, obviously, if you're an on-stage musician, you're so sort of lively and animated. You sort of really you show these emotions and this illness is going to take everything away from him. And... Again, like Riz Ahmed's performance to showcase that and show the isolation and the humiliation about all of that is it's just so brave and, and wonderful. And, it, and humiliation is the word as well. This wasn't a, a, a an illness that seemed glamorised. His his struggle didn't seem like a, a, a cool struggle. It, it it was painful. It was humiliating. In his mind, he he needed to move and he couldn't. He couldn't even go to the toilet properly without help, so it puts him in all these like really uncomfortable situations, and he just desperately wants out of it. And you really get into that headspace of him. Uh, the illness, as well, I believe, is basically the body attacking itself. And I saw a kind of an interview with Riz Ahmed before the film started, where he said that that had some kind of reflection on what was going on in the film as well. That it was actually Zed's own identity almost collapsing in on itself the same way that his 
body was kind of collapsing in on himself. There was, and there's loads of touches like that, loads of like interesting things going on in it. Yeah, the the way through the film, it keeps referring back to this story that he heard, I believe, about his his father who had to hide on a train to escape Pakistan. Yeah, that's right. And this is something that keeps haunting him. There's this idea that your family might experience trauma and that might affect you later in life. And I just think, yeah, that's obviously like a really bold idea and concept to explore. Yeah, it's carrying a lot of... I mean, that's, again, it's this historical identity that Pakistanis uh, carry uh, with them from partition, which the name of the historical... Event where where India and Pakistan were split, and that's what he's kind of carrying with him as part of his big mixed-up identity. And that is that's something that you know he carries not just the genes of his family with him that partly kind of led to this illness. He's also carrying all the history of all his family and his extended family, and he's kind of creating something new. You know, there's so much like that going on in it. You know, I just it just kind of spoke to me a lot about the mixed up nature of the UK. Maybe it's also partly because I've just like moved to London for the kind of in the past sort of year and a bit. And this is really like the always seen as the centre of the country. It's, uh, you know, London uh, is such a diverse place as well. Felt like maybe part of me as well really bonded with this film because I feel even though, you know, a lot of our politics talks is, is often said as it's too London-centric, maybe I, this is the first time in my life I'm, I feel like I'm really in the centre of, of the country. And there was some, there, so I think there's maybe something quite special about that as well. This one's really, really worth seeking out. I think everyone is going to have a kind of different response and reaction to this. Yeah, and the film that Riz Ahmed did before that was Sound of Metal, which is about a drummer in a band losing yeah. his ability to hit. It's funny how that ha- sometimes happens within films. It's really films. weird. It, and you know what? Sound of Metal has actually ended up on a lot of people's best of the year lists. And I haven't seen Sound of Metal yet. And I really, really want to. It's going to be really interesting to see how these two compare. I don't think it's going to have the British link or the thing about the ident- identities. But uh, yeah, I'm, that's going to be something I'm really looking forward to uh, catching up with this year in 2021. Yeah, really good comparison piece. Yeah, we'll ask you where you're from. Now, where are you really from? The question seems simple, but the answer's kind of long. Britons are on board, had another cup of tea in that. But where my jeans are from, people don't really MC in that. Now everybody, everywhere, want the country back. If you want me back to where I'm from, the property, then that. Okay, so my number two is Wolf Walkers, and this is from the same studio who did The Secret of the Kells, Song of the Sea, and The Breadwinner. They're called Cartoon Saloon, and they're based in Kilkenny, where this story is set. So the story is about Bill, voiced by Sean Bean and his daughter Robin, uh, voiced by Honor Nefsi. They moved to Kilkenny as part of Oliver Cromwell's occupancy and control of Ireland in the 17th century. Bill is a hunter, and Robin aspires to be just like her father. After following me into the woods disobediently, she comes across Maeve, who turns out to be a wolf walker, a girl who can control wolves and become one when she sleeps. Wolf Walkers is one of the first animations that I've seen in a long time that just completely blew me away. I mean, I'm not someone that seeks out animation, but actually after seeing Wolf Walkers, I then went to watch uh, Song of the Sea, which was another cartoon saloon uh, film, and... 
Yeah, it's a really incredible um, animation studio because they use hand-drawn imagery rather than computer animation, which is what Pixar films basically do. Yeah. And this gives their films so much more authenticity and earthiness that makes them so unique, especially compared to yeah Pixar, DreamWorks, or other American-based studios. I just think when you have grown up watching lots and lots of Pixar films, which a lot of millennials will have done, and you know their parents as well. I mean, Pixar's yeah. the most commercially successful animation studio in the world but then you watch something like this where it looks like every single drawing has been crafted and carefully created it's just a real real, like breath of fresh air but it's not just in terms of the style which is why it's an incredible film it's just because there are so many interesting ideas and themes that you don't normally see with a kids film i mean i don't want to talk too much about pixar because, well, Cartoon Saloon are probably the superior studio, in my opinion. But (laughs) like, I think in in Pixar, there are a lot of heavy themes they explore. But to me, Wolfwalk has felt even denser than a lot of other Pixar films. Like, there's... I guess one of the ideas that they explore is the idea of um, sort of male protection. So he Bill feels he needs to protect Robin and uphold the values and rules dictated to him by Cromwell and the English autocracy. Yeah. But Robin is quite androgynous, and she's clearly basing her identity on her father, but is told due to her gender that she should work in a kitchen, washing and cleaning. And yeah, there's this idea that in the society that they live in, that Robin is being like, oppressed because even though she's meant to fit into these gender ideals, yeah. that she you know she wants to go off, she wants to be a hunter, she, she wants to sort of explore the world, really. and Well, especially in the... Um, the 17th century that's something that she's not really allowed to do but as the film goes on you see her fulfill the the things that she wants to do yeah and i mean it's it's not uh, a film i think ostensibly about gender identity but i think that the very nature of the wolf walkers the fact that they are people of two bodies they they have a wolf side and they have a that comes out at night and a and a human side that's with them during the day you know, I've, uh, that idea of like switching bodies and, and, and yet them all existing in a society that doesn't really accept uh, people that are, that are very different and like fears them. That there is definitely that element to it, which I think is really nice as well for a family film. Because you, you don't have to go, like, read into it as some kind of necessarily a gender identity thing, but it's just about being different and, and uh, fitting in. Yeah, and finding your own like personality. Well, the the film starts off on this idea of moving to a new strange place, which is a sort of a genre convention within kids' films. Yeah, and so that's a, a really good way to explore a character, really, and about how she expresses herself and what she does. And you know, we've seen this in films like Spirited Away or My Neighbor Totoro, which are Studio Ghibli films. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think Wolf Walkers was definitely inspired by a lot of Studio Ghibli, um, Princess Mononoke as well, because. Princess Mononoke, the Studio Ghibli film, explores animal rights. Nature versus uh, human civilization. Exactly, yeah. And uh, yeah, again, this is something that Wolf, doesn't, Wolf Walkers doesn't copy it, but the, the filmmakers really explore that idea. And it's just a very, very beautiful film. It just feels very tender. I think there's this quality to it where, again, you could watch it with a range of ages and they'd all really, really respond to it. I completely agree. I think it's ju- just actually, it's, it's interesting that 1917 was your first pick because I think this is just as universal a film. I think that you could show this to a whole bunch of people from a whole lot of different ages and backgrounds and interests in, in cinema and they'd all get something out of it. It's really special when family films do that because I think family films partly are supposed to do that as well. They're supposed to be films that are for everyone. You know, I 
yeah, I, I really loved this. I think it was just such a beautiful experience, such a kind of uh, an enriching and warm experience to watch a film of this quality. And I really don't want to sound too much like an elitist or a hipster or something, uh, comparing it to the big studios or the small studios or anything, but watching it, you just can't get over how beautiful that art style is. There, there is something about it that makes it all look so organic, all the colours are so rich, and yet sometimes the backgrounds aren't actually that detailed. Uh, they might just be smaller shapes, the detail might actually be more in the characters' faces and gives them certain characteristics and stuff. But this all just makes it feel more like like a kind of forgotten children's book or or like a tapestry or something. Yeah, a tapestry, like, yeah, is a really good way to describe it. It just gives it that folky feeling, like you're watching something that really has been pulled out of someone's uh, folky culture. And that just is, is such a lovely experience. I mean, like, I think Wolfwalkers... <laughs> I don't know which one I'd, I'd actually want more people to watch, but, like, 1917 or Wolfwalkers, you know, it's, it's, there have been a lot of films, I think, this year that you could you could give to a good a big group of people. But, I mean, I feel like Wolfwalkers is going to be a film that I keep on showing to people because, actually, a lot of... Uh, especially in my, like, friendship group... I don't have a lot of friends that watch a lot of family films and this is going to be something that a lot of my friends gets me out of, particularly the ones that are interested in uh, myths and legends and history. And I think they'd get um, they get a lot of things out of Cartoon Saloon. I mean, they've, did, uh, they've done Secret of the Cows and Song of the Sea, which is also exploring that folklore idea and theme that you're, you're, you mentioned. So, so yeah, if you don't see Wolfwalkers, then also check out either of those two films. I'm going to definitely try and check those out this year, I think. Wolf, wolf, hunt them far and yonder. The forest is brimming with wolves. It's my job to hunt them down, not yours. But we could hunt them together. She's one of them wolf walkers. Wolf walkers? The ones that can talk to wolves with some wild magic. You're a... Wolfwalker. You're a wolf when you sleep. <gasps> a girl when you're awake. So, what is your number one, your best film of 2020? This has actually been the easiest choice of, of, of all my year. I don't think anyone that knows me will be surprised to know that it is Uncut Gems that was released at the beginning of this year. It's directed by the Safdie brothers and it's all about a bling-selling a gambling addict in New York City called Howie and he's played by Adam Sandler and it's just basically a few days in his life in the early noughties as he tries to get right and balance everything out. It is just the most unique, intense, nerve-shaking and near-perfect experience you're going to have watching a film this year. I am absolutely head over heels in love with this film because there are so many things it does brilliantly, but it is incredibly tense it is incredibly chaotic. It, it looks amazing. It, it is all about that intensity. It's all about keeping those things moving and, and 
keep you not really knowing which corner it's going to go round. And it is very ambitious on that level. They go to a lot of weird and wonderful places. You know, the whole, the, the film actually opens up with them doing kind of colon surgery on, on Howie. And uh, yeah, it's also kind of might be them moving through the universe. And it's, it's it, it, there's, there's a lot going on here. But the most important thing is that it's just so unique. You know, watching a Safdie Brothers film, it's just like nothing else. You don't get to see people that can make something that feels so, so unlike anything else that's out there right now. And so brilliant at the same time. It's, it's just... It's just an incredible experience. Yeah, they're really fresh filmmakers. It's the best of independent cinema for me because they have these concepts that keeps you purely on the edge of your seat and also just gives you such an adrenaline rush. Yeah. Because I think the character of Howie is so unpredictable and he's just like a ball of chaos. You don't know what he's going to do and he's trying to juggle so many things like throughout the course of the film and everything's going wrong for him he can't catch a break it's almost like a film about redemption it's a way for him to make it right not only with his family but with the people that he's involved in business with it's interesting you say about redemption because i think that there's something in that i think one of the the questions that the the film really poises and and i think that's up to everyone to make their own mind up about is that is it possible for howie to redeem himself and, and why is that the case? I personally think that it's not possible for Howie to redeem himself. I think that he is a person who is addicted to chaos and just wants to keep that chaos going. So I'm not going to give anything away. But whatever happens in, in, in the film, I think he, he's forever on that crazy train and he's always going to be putting himself on there. And that's just his life. And that's just his life, and that's just who he is. You, and put, like, you could have gone back ten years in his in his life, and, and probably the same. You'd be doing the same, same thing. thing. Yeah. yeah, you go to t- ten years back, uh, ten years forward, whatever you want to do, where, where, wherever he might be or whatever he's doing, he would be always getting himself in shit. And he, he knows what he's doing. I mean, he's he, he's he's not necessarily a likable character. I don't think he's a dislikable character. Because I just love the experience that we I went through with him. He doesn't need to get himself in these stupid situations, but he does. It's, he's addicted to it. He's addicted to the chaos. And the thing is, that's the perfect character for the Safdies, because they love shooting chaos. They, they do all these things that absolutely should not work. The things that you should stay as far away from as a filmmaker as possible. Everything is so improvised. The characters that are on screen, so many of them, even if you didn't know that they, they're not actors, a lot of the people they use, but you can tell they're not actors. Even if you, if you don't have any behind the scenes knowledge, a lot of these people just are plucked right from the streets. They're always in these like really claustrophobic settings and that just adds to this this, this feeling of, of chaos and being bashed around all the time. And it's the editing that does that. I yeah. think there's a really amazing rhythm to the editing. Yes. Which is so important. And I've only seen one other Saturday Brothers film, which is Good Time, which was Robin Pattinson. But I remember watching that and thinking the editing here is just on another level. Yeah. This is why as an audience we're feeling on the edge of our seat this is why we don't know what's going to happen next because it's the rhythm of the editing and it's the shots that they use to compose the film that just makes it really, really amazing. It doesn't necessarily feel real or authentic, but it does feel like you're not watching a normal film. So, And, and that's one of the reasons that anything could happen. 
because you don't you don't know where how he's going to end up next. When you put him in a situation the normal film character would be in, you kind of feel like actually I don't know what what's going to happen to him now because <laughs> my uh, sense for the directions that he could go has been completely thrown off. And it's yeah that that one Adam Sandler performance that we get about once every ten years yeah. or something like that where he's absolutely incredible and. All the critics sit around and say, you know, why can't he do that every single year? And he's going to go off to make a really crap comedy for Netflix or whatever and just going to embarrass himself. And then, yeah, maybe in another 10 years' time, he'll deliver something like this. I, I'm, the exact, I'm that exact stereotype. I hate Adam Sandler in almost everything he does. And then every now and again, he'll come along and he will just absolutely blow my socks off. And I just don't know why he's not doing stuff like this all the time. He is clearly someone that, with the right creative direction, he can put in some amazing work. I really, really wish he'd stop doing his lazy, shitty comedies and just stick with this stuff. This is another film that was released in some regions at the end of last year, but in this country it was released at the beginning of this year uh, on Netflix and in, in cinemas at the same time. I can just tell you, it is the absolute best experience I've had watching a film. It's just the one of the freshest, most interesting, most rewarding, wonderful things I've I've been able to see this year. Just an absolute masterpiece, an absolute classic. Easily going to be one of the best uh, films of the decade. Um, if you haven't seen it already, then please do. And I absolutely can't wait to see what the Safety Brothers do next. You're taking my money all over town, placing bets. I'm having very serious second thoughts. Are you serious right now? I know I fucked up. Howard, where's the money right now? Howard, got my money? Howard! You like to win, right? This is no different than that. I told you about how things were going to go. This is me. This is how I win. So, what's, uh, what's number one for you? Well, number one for me, this has topped quite a few best films of the year list, but uh, my film is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And again, like Uncut Gems, in some regions it was released in 2019, but I first saw this in, in 2020, so I'm going to count it. It's, so yeah, it's set in the 18th century and focuses on Marianne, an artist that has been sent to an island off the coast of Brittany to paint a portrait of Heloise. Heloise is set to be married to a man from Milan that she's never met and has refused to pose for previous artists. Pretending to be her walking companion, Marianne studies Heloise and draws her portrait in secret. I think this is one of those films where it's, so it's about two hours long, and within that running time, you have so many amazing visual ideas and visual concepts within the film that it sort of takes your breath away, almost like five minutes at a time. Yeah. I think when with some films they'll have two or three shots in the film that look really, really good. But Portrait of a Lady of Fire is just a film of that. It's just a film that looks absolutely stunning and amazing. And yeah, as the film goes on, basically Marianne and Heloise, they start to, start to fall in love, start to care about each other. And it's just a really, really organic romance. I don't think it's a film where anything feels forced. It just feels so natural and graceful, really. And yes. you really start to get drawn closer to them. They just become characters that you become more and more fascinated with and you wonder what is is going to happen. I think it's also an example of a film where there isn't much music, but when a score or a song are used, you really notice it and the scene becomes 
a lot more powerful. Partly because I think they're so restricted in the in the, with the music that they use. Yeah, I think maybe it might be a bit like it's a it's a tough watch. I don't think it's a film that you can really you you, you can see like when you're hungover or you know when you're sort of like struggling. It's a film that yeah. you want to really pay close attention to, but it's just such a fulfilling experience once you really sort of get the idea of of the characters and understand their understand their motivations and understand why they start falling in love with each other it's just just a really really intimate and just wonderful wonderful experience it's yeah it's a really beautiful film and you know i think one of the great things about cinema is when they can really connect you to other people and other ideas and this is a film that really felt like it understood something about falling in love and how to connect the audience to some of the really beautiful ideas about falling in love and also like the kind of the struggles and but and but also the kind of the really enriching experience and all the positive sides and the beautiful sides of falling in love and it never feels hokey at all that might make it sound really really sappy but it isn't because there is so much going on in there visually there's so much you know that you are kind of once you're drawn into these characters visually um everything that you see is so beautiful it feels like a really authentic viewpoint of the 18th century complete with this like candlelit uh lighting that's everywhere a lot of naturalism it is a a really really special very intimate experience to watch portrait of a lady on fire it's wonderful to see an LGBT film that can express love in such a in such a wonderful way that you can you can see the the, the way that we come forward as a society that it's acceptable now to make films you know LGBT films that you know continue to n- not just explore the taboo and the way that that love can conquer that taboo but just how two people can just be in love regardless of their gender and how it can uh, still articulate all the things that make love and how there really is no difference between the way that people fall in love, whether it's uh, two men and two women or, or a man and a woman or uh, whatever gender you are. Um, it does also touch on a lot of issues to do with women, like you know their reproductive rights as well, which is a kind of interesting kind of artefact of that time. And yeah, the repression that they suffer. The repression that they suffer. That's why it's... And there, there is, I mean, it's not an LGBT film that, that doesn't engage with LGBT issues because yeah. they, they are, uh, you know, repressed. They have yeah. to be repressed. But that's what makes it so much more beautiful. It the, does. The fact that they can have this connection and they can have this love in a time, yeah, where they, you know, it was, yeah, it was a massive taboo, but... But it's not exactly Brokeback Mountain either because mm. it's not about, it's not just about that uh, as wonderful a film as, as Brokeback Mountain is, they find so many ways in, in Portrait to talk about love and show the experience of falling in love mm. that is really wonderful to watch and it speaks also speaks like a lot of truth. Uh, it's kind of both exciting and kind of relatable. Quite poetic in that way, really. You know, the way that it can find a really beautiful way to penetrate to a truth. Yeah, I don't want to make it sound too stuffy either because no, it's like a no, period. It's a period drama, so yeah. there's like there's this idea that you know they'll have like people, there'll be people standing around, you know, saying these really elaborate and pretentious things, and it's not. It does have this, 
yeah, there is this sort of vibrant quality to it, and there is, even though it does, even though it has this kind of like it, it, because it's set in Brittany, everywhere they go looks looks absolutely beautiful. But it's it's never it's never a film that sort of stands still and admires that. It's you know it looks it's visually absolutely perfect. As I said, every every single frame looks amazing, but. You never feel like you're you're too far away from it. That you're look yeah. That you're looking at a postcard. You feel you feel a part of it. Yeah, you're right. It, it isn't stuffy. It isn't stuffy at all. You're right that you do have to be switched on to engage with it. But uh, it is relative. It, it's it's relatively accessible. But yeah, there's this idea, I guess, of like voyeurism within the film because yeah, yeah Marianne is studying Heloise. The classic film uh, theme. Yeah, exactly. Voyeurism. But yeah, there is this idea of like what can you capture in a portrait? And yes. Yeah. The well, I don't want to like get into too much details, but that's why the title is sort of really key because it's not a great title. It's quite long. It doesn't really tell you too much about the film. But yeah, there's that really like important concept of of what the picture of the portrait of a lady on fire is, but. I thought it was quite an interesting sort of like meta idea was that um, Celine Seymour was in a relationship with Adele Hanel, who plays Heloise prior to the making of the film. Oh right! So there's this idea that. that she's shooting. I think they they were um, they weren't a um, they weren't in a relationship when they made the film. But this is the idea of that the director's shooting someone that she she could have been in love with or she was in a relationship oh, with. Right. So I wonder if that's just an extra quality to the film that you know that makes it really really unique. Is that also a meta thing in general? Because, you know, we're the voyeurs and how much can you understand about love from just watching a film? You know, it's a, it's a subject in fiction that's been around for, a, you know, a long time. You know, I think that the, the film is pretty successful in that. Uh, it's, I think if the film's saying anything, it's that to really understand a kind of a piece of work, you have to understand the context that it's in. And I think the film manages to really connect you with that yeah I just don't think I'll ever see like a film as graceful or as beautiful as that ever again yeah I know that's quite like a high bar to set but <laughs> I, I've seen it twice now over the course of or over the course of this year and the second time I saw it I think it was even better and I got much more out of it the second time so yeah I hope to keep on watching it in the years to come and yeah I think it's it's one of those films that you'd you'd call perfect it is like a perfect film and yeah that's why that's why it's my number one I, I don't think I connected to it quite as much as you did, even though I did see a lot of beauty in it. But it is a film that I actually want to go back and watch again. I want to see what the effect is on me, like the second time round or the third time round on it. If, if you want to see uh, something that really makes you understand the beauty of cinema, but also the beauty of everything, really, I think that, that this really is something worth seeking out. What do you about my future marriage? Rien. C'est tout ce que j'en sais aussi. Quand allez-vous vous marier Je ne sais pas si je vais me marier. C'est parce que vous pouvez choisir que vous ne me comprenez pas. Quel en est le titre Portrait de la jeune fille en feu. And keep an eye out for part two later in the week where we talk about our worst films of 2020. Thank you so much for listening to Cellcast. You can find and subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud as Cellcast. And come follow us on Twitter at Cell Magazine and like us on facebook.com forward slash Cell Magazine.